fishing nets represent uh, the most harmful form of ocean plastic pollution. It's it's actually a study last year came out that confirmed it was four times it's four times more harmful than all other forms of ocean plastic pollution combined. When we looked into it, um, the fish most fishermen are well aware of this problem. They know it's a bad thing to do this, but. A lot of the times, the reason it's do it's it, this is happening is because they really just don't have another alternative. From Alda, this is the Protect Your Wild podcast, a show about founders, athletes, and influencers, and how their passion for the environment led to their actions and career paths today. I'm Colin Campbell, and this week I'm having a chat with Ben Kneppers, one of the co-founders of Bureo. What they do is collect plastic fishing nets in South America that would otherwise get discarded into the ocean and turn into new products like sunglasses or skateboards. If you listen to this and want to know even more about Bureo, be sure to check out our blog post on them at aldalifestyle.com and subscribe to our email list to keep up with our latest content and uh, yeah, new good shit we got coming. But is an awesome company, and Ben has an awesome story, so I'm really excited for you guys to hear it. Thank you. Thanks for the opportunity. My pleasure. Yeah, absolutely. So Bureo is a really cool company that's you know basically taking some of the most harmful plastic waste in the ocean and turning it into cool products through collaborations with other brands. So um, we're going to dive a lot deeper into the company later on, but to, to kick things off, can you Tell me kind of where your, you know, passion and, and love for nature and specifically the ocean came from. Yeah, wow. Well, I, I definitely think I should preface everything by saying uh, I'm very notorious for being long-winded. So I okay. will be doing my very best to, uh, I've, I've worked very hard over the last years to, to try to get more concise with my answers. But um, yeah, no, I mean, I, I grew up in New England, uh, uh-huh. just outside of Cape Cod, so always grew up by the water. Um, and so from a young age, that certainly um, made that, that a, a strong connection for me. And um, then uh, I, I did uh, my studies in mechanical engineering, um, just because I had a knack for science and, and math. Um, not really seeing myself ever as an engineer, but I, I took it as to develop a strong skill set. And, and the bigger thing was to, to, to try to learn from my father that taught me that the best job you're going to do is really the one that, that you love to do the most because mm-hmm. it's not work anymore. It's, it's, it's your passion. 100%, and yeah. so, so through that engineering degree, I, I used it to try and seek out my passion and, and connecting it with these skill sets. So um, through that, I got into the field of sustainability, and um, at, at during college, I got really introduced to this sustainability crisis that that we're really facing still, very very much so, even more so today, and that certainly connected with my passion. Absolutely. Um, from a from a very principled standpoint, where at the same time, uh, the ocean was my, I guess, personal passion, where I, I used all my free time to enjoy myself. And, um, I guess it wasn't until really, um, living in, in, in Sydney, Australia, where I was doing, uh, my career as a sustainability consultant, um, where I just was fully immersed in the ocean environment every day when I, granted I worked in an office, but, um, it was right next to the, the water where you could, you could surf at lunch break and, Damn. 
before work and after work and, and everything. And, and that's where I met my really good friend, Dave, uh, who's now one of the co-founders of, of Boreo with me. Is and an uh, and also well? Kevin. His, his or are, are they both Yeah, we're Americans? actually all three. Yeah, we're all, all three of us are originally from um, the Northeast. Nice. Um, Dave is from Block Island and Kevin's from Montauk, New York. Okay. And so um, we all really grew up right next to the water, having a strong love for it. What are and the beaches be- like up there, actually? Because I'm, I'm from like the southeast in Florida, right? Oh, yeah. So I, I yeah. definitely grew up around water, but we were more kind of in rivers and springs, I guess, being in central Florida. Um, and yep. then would do like day trips out to the beach. But like, what, what was the, the beach life like in the northeast? Well, I mean, we have truly seasonal uh, weather. So you've got the cold, snowy winters, but then you've got the really hot summers. But it was only for a acute amount of time. So when the summers came around, you really would make the most of them. So um, you'd get these really nice um, spring right coming right around the corner into these hot summer days where – I mean, when you really break it down, it's probably a couple dozen good beach days you're you're getting a year. Um, so you have to get creative and doing other things around uh, around the ocean environment as well. So that's where um, you know you get into your sailing and boating and kayaking, oh, right. fishing, and and um, and then I got introduced to surfing fairly late on later and fairly late in, in high school. And I was terrible, but I just thought this is the coolest freaking thing in the world. It is a, a very unique feeling. I, I, I myself yeah. dabbled in it, you know, just going to the beach would rent a board every now and then. And I, I stood up a few times and just the feeling was like, so, uh, I don't know, like nothing else I'd done. It's yeah. really interesting. No, it's amazing. It's amazing. So, um, we would make it a, like some of the things we would do is like try to do a challenge of like trying to see if you could surf and snowboard in the same day. <laughs> so you would get up really early, wake up first thing and, and, and surf horrible, horrible, like Massachusetts South coast waves in the morning and then drive straight up to New Hampshire to go snowboarding. That's hilarious. Um, like by mid morning, you'd be snowboarding and then you'd wrap the things up just so you could like show up at a house party at your buddies. <laughs> like, oh yeah, I surfed and yeah. snowboarded today horribly, but at least you could try to. We have like a, a similar thing in Colorado. We can, where I'm at in Boulder, we can try in one day to, to get out climbing. Right. So we'll yeah. go, I got right in Boulder Canyon, bunch of climbing outdoors then you keep going through Boulder Canyon and you got Eldora, which is about, you know, 45 minutes away to, to snowboard at. Um, and oh, then man. coming back in, we can try to mountain bike back down the canyon <laughs> and, and oh, literally try man. to. I haven't done it yet personally, but I've had friends that are, are we're trying to get something together to, to just and then see you, how many. You just ride right off a cliff and just skydive. <laughs> right, yeah. yeah. And then we do some yeah. base jumping off the cliff <laughs> and we, we just happen yeah. to land right in a jacuzzi with beers waiting for us. It's, it's really perfect. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm sure there's people that that are up for that challenge in Colorado. Yeah, yeah, so it's, it's, it's a new breed of person here. I'm not used to it being from Florida. It's it's a lot of uh, intense athletes for sure. Yeah. Um. So uh. So you ended up in Australia doing some consulting there, and you're you're able to match up your passion um, with your actual work, which is a, um, I think kind of a, a harder thing to do than than people think because it's it's like difficult to find. A passion in the first place. Uh, I at least know a lot of you know. I, I'm somewhat recently graduated and have a lot of friends still kind of 
uh, dabbling in this or that, trying to figure out, you know, what they really love. So how did you really kind of know that that was what you wanted to do? Like, how, how did you, like, is that, I guess, deep in your core that you just knew that that's what you're going for? But um, yeah, how did I mean, that I develop? Think- I think, I mean, you're, the point about it's, it's harder than you think. It definitely is, but at the same time, I feel like it's, it also can be a lot more doable than a lot of people think. Um, that when you're in high I, you know, I went to a standard, you know, straight-laced Catholic high school where everything was about what college you went to afterwards. And then yeah. when you're in college, it was about, oh, what's the cool, you know, what's the most impressive company you can internship oh, yeah. And then eventually work for and that, and that was that was yeah it was really just like this this uh road with no no openings for turns or anything and uh it wasn't until yeah i started to travel and i started to meet people from all parts of the world that were doing so many different things just you start to realize like it doesn't have to be just this this one lane road it, you can go and really create a career out of whatever you really desire and um and there's a lot of studies that actually back that kind of stuff up. But anyway, for me, I mean, it was, again, it was about um, going after that passion and then somehow trusting that a career would, would come out of it. And, and for me, I was just so passionate about sustainability um, that and when I got out of grad school in that area, there wasn't even sustainability directors in companies. You know, it's still right. such an unknown thing. And and thank God I, I was really in a position where that was just kicking off. Where now I think, you know, any Fortune five com- five hundred companies got a an entire sustainability department in most cases, right. and and uh, and and it's completely becoming a part of. I mean, we still have a long way to go, but it's it definitely was moving in the right direction. Understanding there is a need for people like this in 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 industry and and government and everywhere today. Absolutely. Yeah, and um, I guess out of that too, what what then made you want to decide to to take your kind of talents to Australia and be like a global citizen, so to speak? A lot of people, you know, stay here and or just stay even yeah. in the town that they went to school in. Um, well, it, it it really was from that that whole trying to find where where my passion was, and and uh, I got lucky to. Being a, a program, a co-op program in my undergrad um, that let me do three six-month internships as part of my degree. It was at, through Northeastern University in Boston, and so I was just like, okay, I'm going to try as many different things, many parts of the world as I can. And and I I went and worked in first in California where I got super into surfing, then in uh, Galway, Ireland, uh, where I also oh, nice. actually got Ireland's into the shit, man. surfing there. Yeah, <laughs> I love Ireland. And then I did, I did my final um, my final uh, internship in in a refugee camp in Zambia, and that got me into sustainability. And then I did my master's in Sweden in sustainability, and then I hooked up with people that were from New Zealand, Australia, and that led me on to my work opportunities there. So it's actually as as far fetched as it sounds. It was actually quite organic and and fluid with with the way my my life was going. Yeah, and. Um, but but what it eventually brought me to was the sustainability consulting, although it was fulfilling that, like working towards my passion, it wasn't as fulfilling as I wanted it to be. I, I was really still just writing a report to have a meeting, to have a meeting, to write a report. And I wasn't really seeing the, the change that I was expecting to see. 
And I I continued with that career, and that brought me to Chile, um, where I continued working in that space. And that's when the idea of starting Boreo really happened, and where we could take it a step further. Absolutely. Absolutely. And what? Tell me a little bit more about that experience in Zambia. That's or was it or Zimbabwe? Did I mess that up? Sorry. Zambia. Zambia. Zambia, Okay. Yeah, because in in all my research, I, I hadn't seen that yet, and that sounds pretty fascinating. Yeah, it was it was um, a student-run NGO that was in partnership with UNHCR that selected, I think, like eight to ten uh, undergraduate students uh, to become ambassadors to a refugee camp and a settlement in Zambia um, that they had ties to. And what we did was um, design, develop, fundraise, and then go in and implement our own programs to help empower. The refugees there. So mine was around um, uh, grassroots soccer, which is a, a program that that teaches children and, and, and adults how through games and and, and different play play activities about the, the the key things that people need to understand when it comes to HIV AIDS uh, cool. and and to try to overcome the stigmas and and um, and the many challenges that are being faced with it. So, and then also I did some renewable energy project stuff there as well with my engineering background. Um, but, but the project itself really wasn't the takeaway. The takeaway was really the, the, this absolutely unjustifiable situation that some of the most generous and warm and good people I've ever met in my life were put in. And, and, uh, that put me through this thing called reverse culture shock, which is really about, um, you come back to to reality of, of, of our reality of, of a first world country and, and you can't explain it and you and you want answers of why it's this way and, and that's what what turned me into the field of sustainability so was there was there anything that kind of led you to an acceptance after that because I, I imagine it's pretty I, I've yet to travel I guess anywhere to, to have that initial culture shock but I, I have always kind of held the the belief that I'm, I'm just lucky, you know, I'm, I'm pretty lucky to be born where I was born. I'm lucky to be born to parents that are, are were loving and supportive, you know, um, was there anything that kind of helped you readjust or, or like, uh, you know, take what you saw there and, and kind of make it a part of yourself and then, um, yeah, I don't know, make some sense of the world out of it. Well, that, that, that was really that introduction to sustainability was understanding that, there are, you know, because you, you see the situation, you say there's no reason, why, there's no justifiable reason that people are put into these situations. And, mm-hmm. and then you, when you understand that there's these, um, these basically systematic uh, mechanisms that, that unfortunately over time drive these situations to occur, that let me understand why this has happened. It's, it's a design flaw in our system that leads people uh, that through a causal reaction to eventually be the ones that are going to be put at the brunt of a situation when countries are are not run correctly and people are overlooked and and there's there's not enough security for um, to, to prevent other vulnerabilities to occur, like, like, um, malicious overtaking a certain part of a country. Um, unfortunately these, this is what, what drives the whole system and into, uh, finally getting my answer of why are people put there? And then when I understood it, 
um, it, it led me to believe, well, that's what I want to work on in so many words it, it, for, for my, for my, the rest of my life is working towards overcoming this unsustainable systemic issues that we have, um, in the world today that that's what I want to work on solving. Yeah. That, that's, that's a great, uh, a great answer, especially I think to encourage anybody that, that hasn't gotten a chance to travel much or, or see some other perspectives to, to do so if they get the opportunity um it can definitely definitely change oh, yeah someone. yeah i mean when you really understand what it means to be a refugee I, and and it's somebody that has to flee from their country it's 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 really unfortunate that not enough people get to understand i mean it would simply be like we're sitting right now and you there's a scurry and and of people and and suddenly you're moving and and you find out that your your home your hometown is no longer safe to live with, and you have no choice to be yet sent with to another place to resettle, and and that's it. That's that's all there is to it. Doesn't matter yeah. if you're a lawyer, a banker, you've got lots of money. That's all gone. Whoever you're with, you know, family members you're lucky to be with or not, uh, that's it. Yeah. You, you gotta you gotta make make your way, and and it's 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 really unfair, and and it's it's unfortunate that that not enough people understand that because they're really great people. Yeah. Yeah. And it's this, you know, it's, it's a weird, I guess, um, mixture now where, you know, I did some travels to, to Greece, I guess, where I saw it the most. And you have this clash of like tourism mixed with the locals mixed with refugees all in the same place. And you have the tourists are trying to just enjoy themselves and have a good time. The refugees are trying to, well, everybody, I guess there's a pretty bad economy still in Athens, but the refugees mm. are just trying to do things to survive and to make ends meet, whatever that might be, be it, you know, selling, trying to sell little things to tourists or what have you. And, uh, and then yeah. often, you know, get, get treated with kind of like a less than human level of, of disrespect. It, it was, uh, yeah. it was weird kind of seeing that all, all mesh in, in one place. Um, Yeah. Yeah, it's it's a very complicated situation. Yeah, but uh, to I guess the transition over to to kind of a lighter note. So then you move uh, to uh, South America and somewhere there, yep. I presume you meet your wife Gabby. I just want to ask, like, tell me the story <laughs> behind that, and and what role does she kind of play in in Bureo? She she actually um, she was uh, we met in Australia. She was oh, okay. the bartender of our favorite bar in sydney (laughs) and (laughs) um, the bartender okay maybe i'll start trying that (laughs) yeah wharf bar great great place to meet your future wife yeah Uh, but yeah we met and um her visa ran out and i was looking for a new challenge and was presented to an for an opportunity to um work in chile and at the same time, she was moving back to Brazil. So Brazil, Brazil and Chile are a lot closer than Brazil and Australia. So we <laughs> yeah, um, we made it that we made it that way together. Yeah, and she's she's been here for the whole ride. It's it, she's been incredible. Um, definitely could not have done this without her. Yeah, and um, she's she's she actually funny enough went after her own new career. Um, as a print designer, at the same time we started Boreo. So yeah, we, I saw we some of her artwork there. It's beautiful. Oh yeah, thank you. Yeah, and she did. She's done a lot of stuff for Beret as well. Nice. Yeah, that's a crazy story. And then it all brings you back to South America and Chile and everything. And yep, wow. yep. And uh, so yeah, now I guess uh, what some people might not realize is that you're living 
back now in Brazil and Sao Paulo, correct? Yeah, ever since we had our first first addition to the family, um, we and and now as we're scaling Boreo, we we decided it'd be better to stay based in Brazil, close to the family, where I'm now not only spending my time in Chile, but Peru, Argentina, Uruguay, um, and and elsewhere that we're trying to set up the program in. So for all those reasons, we thought it'd be better to to have more stability here with the family nearby. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I'm I'm hoping to do a trip soon down. I was, I was looking at going to like southern Argentina and Chile to, uh, you know, play in the mountains, basically. Um, yeah, yeah. But yeah, it's so that, a, such a beautiful let me know. area. I'm happy to give you plenty of tips. Yeah, that'd be great. Yeah, because um, I don't. First, I'm not at all proficient in Spanish, so that's my first thing. Is I, I'm probably going <laughs> to start trying to trying to work on some Spanish. <laughs> yep. That's that's a good idea. <laughs> yeah. Are you uh, fluent in Spanish and Portuguese, or how's I communication am, been? I I I think I would say I'm I'm proficient in in I get the job done in Spanish, um, and I I'm getting pretty fluent in Portuñol, hmm. which is a, a good combination mix of Spanish and and Portuguese. It, it was it was it was a very frustrating process to finally feel confident with my Spanish and then get up and move to another country <laughs> with another language. So right. I, I'm still working on that. But I mean, my Spanish totally gets me by here. Yeah, it gets the job done. Clearly, yeah, yeah. if you're doing, you know, making relationships with these uh, coastal towns and stuff, um, yeah, you, you have to, to have some working communication going. Absolutely. Um, so before we start diving, uh, more into the the story of the company and, and details behind that, uh, I got a little game that I want to (laughs) play that I just, I just made up. So hopefully it it works and is interesting, but, uh, you know, since Bureo is all about protecting the ocean through pulling the nets out and stuff, uh, what I want to do is throw out some things on land that are either happening or, or that are on land and see if you can come up with like what's the equivalent in the ocean world right what's the underwater equivalent wow. <laughs> does that sound okay. good we'll see what I, happens we will see yeah <laughs> um so the first one i got here uh what would be do you think sorry you can probably hear my parrot going off right now he's <laughs> he's uh kind of like a side a sidekick to the show um <laughs> <laughs> So, uh, what do you think would be like the equivalent of an elephant uh, in the ocean? So, considering that elephants, you know, they're a keystone species, right? They're able to kind of mm. manipulate their environment a little bit, and and other animals kind of benefit from that. Um, can you think of any any animals in the ocean that might be kind of fill that role? I mean, probably whales would come to mind. I mean, mm-hmm. they're they're absolutely essential to the biodiversity and in the systems they migrate as well and and obviously the biggest one is they're very large yeah um so yeah probably probably whales would come to mind nice yeah i I'd probably agree there i i necessarily have any answer to that one I was, <laughs> and, I and unfortunately myself. they're both both in under in danger right now yeah yeah, and it, it is weird. There is still a lot of uh, legal whale hunting happening, right? Oh, or, or is I, it? Yeah, it's probably in a gray area, I guess. It's I'd a imagine. gray area where they they call them research vessels that are are going out and doing this, uh, doing the capturing, for, and they claim it's for research reasons. But yeah, at this point, I just don't see the value in it anymore. 
I, I don't get it. Yeah, and I, I just recently started reading that book, Sapiens, and they talked about basically everywhere man went, the first to go were the massive animals, right? The large mammals mm. or the large birds like the moa in, in New Zealand and such, right? Yeah. Um, and yet we're still, you know, can't get away from that for some reason and still killing off these beautiful creatures that, you know, we should be kind of yeah. past that point, you'd think. Um, yeah. Anyway, so yeah, it got dark there again. Uh, <laughs> and yeah, I guess it'll continue. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, the next one I got is what? What do you think would be like the equivalent to uh, desertification in the ocean? So, for anybody that doesn't know, I guess desertification is like because of deforestation and so forth. A lot of these areas no longer have um, plants and stuff to help retain the soil and the fertility of the soil and the moisture in the soil. Um, so areas that were once lush, uh, you know, are turning to deserts essentially. Yeah, I would probably think, um, probably algae blooms would probably be the closest thing I would think of because it's, it's something that, um, uh, very similar to desertification takes the life out of the, takes the oxygen out of the water and then, and then takes the life out of it and creates dead zones right. in the ocean. Yeah. The one in the Gulf so, is the big, or the one that I'm aware of. Are there any, are there any other ones, I guess, that you, you've heard about? Yeah. I mean, uh, off the top of my head, I'll, I, I will definitely be misquoting, but there's definitely, um, it's becoming an increasing issue. I think, um, with the, I'm not a hundred percent confident on this claim, but I believe with the rising sea level, uh, a sea temp, uh, temperature of the sea, uh, it, it's creating an increase of this kind of occurrence, mm-hmm. and which is creating more and more of these these dead zone areas. Right, it's like you, a positive feedback cycle, yeah. kind of right. Yep. Yep. Mm. Again, really on these positive. Positive yeah, here. yeah. I'll, uh, it'll turn around at some point. Okay, <laughs> it'll okay. get positive. The next one might be wildfires, but uh, on the <laughs> on the uh, algae bloom note, I want to mention too. Being in Florida, that was a a big thing. There's lots of agriculture around there, and uh, in Central yeah. Florida, we're lucky enough to have some of the the most you know beautiful, pristine springs in the world, and like the highest concentration of them. Um, so if you haven't gotten a chance to to you know explore around Florida. You know, Disneyland can kind of, you know, ignore that, but, but go check out the springs for sure before, um, those algae blooms kind of start mucking those up. Oh gosh. I will put that, definitely put that on the list. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. It's, it's, it really is gorgeous, but, uh, um, anyway, yeah. So wildfires, right? (laughs) Obviously, I don't know how in, in touch you are with, with the, the news and things happening still in America, but you know, we had a, that pretty bad season in California of, yeah. of wildfires that affected a, a ton of people. Um, is there anything that's happening kind of like that in the ocean as well? In the ocean, I mean, you could, you could talk about the, the general temperature increase causing the coral bleaching could be something oh, comparable right. to it. Or yeah, the like reefs. another way you could talk about the opposite of, I mean, the opposite of, of, fires ice but but water uh, with sea level rise could be another thing to con- compare it to maybe yeah um or even just or, or storm as well um cyclones and so forth right that maybe just another 
extreme weather event. Yeah. True. <laughs> I was thinking maybe like oil spills too. Like it, it like just like puts a mat yeah. over a certain area and just like destroys everything there. And then, yeah. and then we do our best to, to clean it up and figure it yeah. out. Um, yeah. So more positive. One. Yeah. <laughs> I'll just <laughs> move on. I didn't realize what I was writing. This how dark Fun it could game, get. Fun game, man. Wow. <laughs> the, so that the last, flat. uh, so pigeons right you've done lots of traveling and i'm always blown away that i see these damn pigeons anywhere and everywhere i go that there's people there seem to be pigeons so uh uh, is there any like pigeon of the sea that's something that that's just like somehow managed to live everywhere i would i mean seagulls are pretty pretty impressive (laughs) true yeah and and, And they eat trash just like the pigeons right yeah they're they're pretty similar with with they're just present everywhere and and um and then i'm trying to think if there's a sea animal that could be like the pigeon of the sea but i think probably the the seagull is probably the the best fit yeah nice yeah have you had that experience too where you just always are blown away like how is there pigeons here i was i swear i was in iceland and there were pigeons in Reykjavik. i was like what the hell (laughs) i mean in the same again maybe another reason why i compare it so i feel that same way with with seagulls like it's just impressive (laughs) to see um you know where i grew up there was like uh I think they call it like Gull Island or something. It's just like this island that's always completely filled with seagulls. And it's, I guess, like there's so many dead ones on the island too. So oh, it's kind of where they go to die too. So it's just weird. bizarre. Yeah. Yeah. It's very weird. Um, yeah. So, uh, and then the last, last one is, is kind okay. of to help transition us back to the, the Bureo story. Um, do you think there's like an equivalent of, and this is flipped now, right? So nets being such a big problem in the ocean, right? Because of wildlife entanglement and obviously like just accumulating to the, the massive plastic trash piles that are, are building up. Is there kind of like an equivalent to that, that you can think of on land basically that, that, uh, is, is been similarly impactful to the wildlife. Gosh. Um, in form of pollution, um, that's actually harder than I thought. I mean, we always call it the the first thing that came to mind, but it doesn't represent it fair enough. Is like we we call one instance of a of a fishing net being left at sea is is an underwater tumbleweed hmm. because it it just continues just like a tumbleweed travels by the wind catching it and then it snags on something and then it blows and it keeps moving on. That's the same thing that happens with a net when it's underwater, it's, and it's really terrible when it's you know around coral reefs or a really sensitive marine ecosystem because yeah. it'll just catch on something and it'll just tug on it until it until forever piece of or, coral or, or something, something or catches yeah. yeah yeah so so the the underwater tumbleweed but obviously tumbleweed is a pretty harmless thing right so. Huh. Uh, for, I mean, for I was thinking land. plastic bags blow around, but I don't think they're quite as harmful to to you know land plastic wildlife bag, as nets. I think plastic <clears throat> bag is probably a pretty good example because it does have that kind of same activity. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was a crazy um, crazy example of plastic bags. Uh, Marcus Erickson from Five Gyres, who are kind of like on yeah, the yeah. four. I think Chico uh, bag uh, works with 
them, I yes. believe. Yeah, I talked yeah. to Andy Ochika back. Yeah, yeah, they're, uh, he's awesome. And he would go around giving a presentation. At the end of it, he would take out of a ba- of this big box, like this massive block of like this like plastic blob. And he goes, "Does anyone want to guess what this is?" And it was turned out it was like I don't know, probably over a thousand uh, plastic shopping bags that were removed from a camel's stomach. Ah, jeez. And, and it was uh, it was from the, the 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 plastic would catch on the trees and it would be ah. just like leaves. And so the camels and you know all these animals feed, that feed on the leaves for food would go up and eat it just like a leaf and and would just completely block stomachs and oh jeez yeah another another wonderful positive well, note. yeah i mean it's it's uh, the unfortunate realities i guess of the yeah. the kind of environment we've we've or the problems we've created for ourselves through you know lack of foresight i guess i mean or i don't yeah. know chalk it up to humans just wanting things to be convenient i don't know but you know i'm glad that <laughs> there's companies and and governments starting to figure this shit out and, and like put their foot down and say, all right, we're gonna, we, we can't keep doing this, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I hope so. Um, but yeah, so that's where obviously Bureo is doing great work. I pulled from your website, some facts of, you know, 365,000 pounds, uh, sorry, not pounds, kilos, right. Of, uh, <laughs> net plus materials. Which is now actually quite a bit higher now. Oh, yeah, is it? Every day. Okay. Every yeah. Day. Yeah. Yeah. Nice. And that was the collected from, it said 50 fisheries at that time. Is that number probably going up as well? Yeah, I actually just had a meeting with uh, one of the fisheries um, representatives in Brazil this morning. And so um, we are all across um, so, uh, Chile and we just launched in Peru at the beginning of this year. And we're now finalizing uh, in Uruguay and Argentina Nice. And then the next would be uh, we're looking at br- southern Brazil and Ecuador. That's awesome. And yeah, so it's to to explain, or I'll just have you explain it real quick. I guess sure. the the fundamental business model that that Bureo operates off of, so that people kind of have an understanding of how this process works. Yeah. So the way it works is. Um, You've got this big problem. So fishing nets represent uh, the most harmful form of ocean plastic pollution. It's, it's actually a study last year came out that confirmed it was four time, it's four times more harmful than all other forms of ocean plastic pollution Jeez. combined. And um, when we got to looking into the issue, um, it certainly uh, is a problem, but it, it's an unavoidable use of plastic. Um, whether we like it or not, fishermen right now need to depend on using plastic-based fishing nets to, to continue their, their livelihood. Is it like and because of the material and the cost or, or why is that? Just curious. Everything. I mean, it's, it's, the, it's the positive side of, of plastic, being right. lightweight, durable, um, fairly long-lasting, and at a very good affordable price. Okay. So unfortunately... For the fishing industry, there's really nothing else that can compete on all those needs for, for the fishermen right now. Gotcha. Okay. Uh, and so uh, when we looked into it, um, the fish most fishermen are well aware of this problem. They know it's a bad thing to do this. But a lot of the times, the reason it's do, it's it, this is happening is because they really just don't have another alternative. 
especially in the case of artisanal, small-scale artisanal fisher, fishing communities, they don't have the infrastructure to manage this waste that's turning over as often as a weekly basis. And so, so what we did with Boreo is we created a program in uh, first launched in Chile in 2013 uh, that we call Net Positiva. That's the Chile's first ever fishing net collection program. Where we, what we do is we partner directly with the fisheries. So from the largest commercial fishing com- fishing companies to the smallest artisanal communities, and give them those resources so that when their nets meet their end of life, we can be right there uh, to to collect them back and have this really positive solution for that material. And we do this by getting the commitment from the fishermen. We train and educate them on how to return them, how to set them aside for us. And then we give local employment opportunities by employing local people to manage that collection, cleaning, sorting, packing process that can now be a business opportunity for those local workers. I and then, love that part, for sure. And and then through every um, through that, we can then get this material that is now highly recyclable, highly durable, um, that has, in many limitless applications. And and uh, in doing so, we're creating a higher value for this material. So we work through the shared value model, um, where we're certified B Corp and member one percent for the planet. Where for every pound of fishing that we receive, we reinvest it back in those communities. So that goes into working, expanding the program to go to, to provide the service to more communities, as well as working with local NGOs that identify other environmental issues facing these communities and reinvest the money to address those other critical things that might not make such business sense, but allow us to truly make uh, what we call a net positive impact um, from this once harmful material to make really positive products that can then generate funds that can can do so much more right yeah that's that's such an incredible model like the as far as how there's you know those positive feedback loops for that can happen in all sorts of different things creating models like this that have a a positive feedback loop around the communities that you're helping um yeah it's 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 the future of business and the future of capitalism i think absolutely i mean there's a huge movement going on right now um called the circular economy yeah and that's really all about changing this model we have right now that that quite frankly is completely flawed of just this take make waste linear economy uh, where it just doesn't it's not going to work forever that way whether we like it or not and and it's becoming and as as people are not seeing that uh, it's becoming more and more business sense, not just for the environment, but financially to switch to a circular economy where there's never a waste stream. There's, it's always another feedstock for another, another, um, product or another raw material source. And, and it's, that was a big thing where we, we started off on is we didn't want to go the nonprofit way and we didn't want it to be a one-off thing that we could do some beach cleanups and, and have something nice done. We wanted something that would self-sustain and not only self-sustain, but scale. And yeah. so that's really why we, we, we took the challenge and, and went this approach rather than others. Yeah, yeah. And, and uh, as far as the scaling goes now, you've started obviously in Chile, right? And now you said you're making deals with multiple other countries in, in South America. I'm, I'm just curious, is there, uh, like, do you know, I guess, how, how does America kind of handle with, with probably, we have pretty, I'd imagine, more larger corporations involved with, with fishing, but I, there's, yeah. I still, I imagine, you know, local fishing 
you know, communities and stuff. Um, just do you know yeah. how we're handling it or <laughs> the biggest, the, the biggest, uh, activity for the U S is, is Alaska. Um, and there is some programs going on there. Um, okay. we try not to overstep if anyone's already working in a certain area, we certainly don't want to overstep our, <coughs> our boundaries. Um, but, but we, we look into that. Um, also the, the West coast, <coughs> Washington state and in, in California, there's still a fair amount of fishing activity, um, that, that we're definitely keen to get involved in on the, on the East coast. Um, uh, you've got where I'm from in New England, you know, New Bedford is, is like 10 minutes from where I grew up and I've got a lot of good friends from there. It's a place that I, I still hope that someday we can do. Um, but there is some stuff going on. I mean, a big one is, is actually, it's kind of controversial, but they burn the, the nets for energy. Hmm. And, um, yeah, and imagine so, that has, can have some, uh, probably bad, uh, yeah, uh, yeah, <laughs> but yeah. still, I guess, yeah. better option than getting it's, entangled it's up. A, I think it's probably just cause it's such a straightforward thing. You can just take the nets, whatever form they're in at their right. end of life, throw them into this thing that'll burn them and, and get an energy out of it. Um, so that's kind of been in place in, in some of the places we've tried to look at working and, hmm. and really honestly, like the opportunity has just been so big for us down here that we, we first just wanted to get this really, uh, oh, yeah. all kicked off before we, we got into more, more places. Certainly are really hopeful we can, we can bring it to more, more stuff in North America as well. Absolutely. Yeah. And, um, on the, the government regulation side, I guess, are there any, I, I heard, and, and this could be untrue that it was like legal for fishermen essentially just cut their nets and let them, you know, drop in the ocean because that wasn't really like anybody's territory or something. I don't know. Mm. I, I just, it's just something I feel like I heard about, but is there any good is things happening in, on that side of things? Are you saying like, obviously every, every country, every jurisdiction, every state, like it's going to have its own code. So right. Um, I'm sure there's definitely places in the world where that still exists. Yeah. And it's more actually about the accountability. It's very difficult to, um, to track those nets once they're lost at sea. So, right. um, it's increasing the, the regulation in general I, from what I've seen, but it's still got a ways to go and just having the accountability of where this stuff is, where, what the fishermen are doing it at their end of life. And it's yeah. something we, we actually try to get involved in whatever we can. Um, we're also active in the, the global ghost gear initiative, which is run through the, the ocean Con, uh, conservancy. And oh, yeah. it's, uh, it's kind of like the global hub for everyone that's working on this issue of, of discarded fishing gear. Nice. Nice. Um, uh, sorry, I'm writing that down. Um, <laughs> so, uh, with that, I guess the big part that you guys are doing is providing the infrastructure that makes it easy. Like one of the big things with, I think, a lot of these sustainability issues is you have to make it easy and obvious for people to do the right thing, kind of. Yeah. Um, and, and clearly that was <laughs> a big part of what you guys had in mind and what you built. Absolutely. I mean, yeah, it, it it's a lot of... Um, I mean, three main main themes that we dug into when we started was was one um, infrastructure stopping at source. You know, eighty percent of the waste comes from land based sources. So we really rather than and the research out there was really um, saying it's much more effective to from stopping it before it ends up in the ocean than 
trying to go, to go out it. and try to collect it. So we really yeah. focus on that. Uh, two, the education piece. A lot of people don't realize, and it's it's a powerful thing to explain to a fisherman is to say, you know, they know in general it's bad to leave your trash out and, and leave your nets, but it's it's another thing to show them like that net you're leaving out there, that's going to be there for over 200 years if, if we just don't do anything about it. And that, that's a little bit more impactful. So creating that education. And then the third is, is about the behavior change. So mm. people in general want to do good, but if it's out of their day-to-day activity, if it's too far out of that, there's only so far people will go. So um, what, we create, what we really focus on is, is creating the incentives. So by giving a financial incentive is a big one. So people know that it's worth their time and energy um, to do so. And like you said, um, making it really easy. So people can get what we're doing. They get the concept. This is a net. This is the product from the net. And, and that this is all you have to do is just drop it off here. And everyone else that has to do the extra work, we're going to pay them good money to do it. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. It's clear that, uh, you know, you put a lot of thought and that you had this deep, deeply rooted, like business and consulting background. Like you have a great understanding of this. Um, and, and speaking of the, the products that come of it, what, what made you guys kind of decide on, on starting with the skateboard? Was that the first, the first thing you guys started making out of this? It was. Yeah. Yeah. It, well, we, that was the question, right? Like we, we first just thought, um, we need to make the whole concept of upcycling. So there's downcycling, recycling, and upcycling. Down recycling is a straightforward thing. You get one bottle, you recycle it, you make another bottle. Right. Downcycling <laughs> is where you take maybe a, a, a car bumpers that were probably worth a lot, and you downcycle into something like a, a plastic crate or a railroad tie that's not worth a lot. And then there's upcycling where you take something like a fishing net and now you can recycle into something worth a lot more. And right. we were really into that idea. And so with the skateboard deck, um, it's something where you can take one kilogram, two pounds of, of fishing net, and now you can transform it into something that uh, is worth over $100. And sure. not only that, it's, it's also a great education tool. It's a great talking piece. And for the, the long-term play that, honestly, we weren't even after at that time, is it was a great case for showing how well this plastic can perform because a skateboard needs to be something that really performs well. And yeah. the number one thing we needed to make sure was it wasn't snapping and, and it could work just like a, any other plastic cruiser. And with with the work we did on that, it, we, we did finally get there. So the the case for like anyone else that was looking to use our plastic was kind of already proven to show it definitely can hold up to the standards of of most plastic products nice that makes a lot of sense now that you put it that way i didn't think about something that shows off the like durability side of of the plastic itself as a material um and that was done through a partnership with carver right well, we actually started with our own model um, okay. that we got a grant fund from the um, Chilean government as well as a couple other small funds from actually Northeastern University and the New England Aquarium um, to really just get the capital to set up our first collection point. Um, the three of us, uh, since we had no other funds to hire anyone, scrubbing and packing the nets for, for three straight months and then having the money to build the molds so that we could recycle the nets and injection mold it into the skateboard deck. So 
we got just enough money to do that. And then uh, we launched the whole thing on Kickstarter. That was really putting everything on the line, which yeah. in some ways was a good thing because if you're not going to succeed there, then you're not going to succeed in the real market. Right. And we were actually able to raise our hit our goal of, I think, 30 grand in three days. And then nice. ended up uh, more than doubling it. So we we're it like, OK, a huge relief. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You do all this yeah. work uh, between you guys, putting in all the elbow grease and doing yeah. it yourselves. I mean, and then Kickstarters are exhausting. <clears throat> I'm, I'm really glad we don't have to. We're not doing that approach anymore. I mean, some companies are genius where they've yeah. created such a great following that every time they do a product launch, they go through Kickstarter. Yeah, but quality's been us, killing it, especially. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's a great example. And um, But for us, it was just like, how many solids do we have to ask our friends of buying our stuff? So right. They were amazing to help us get off the ground, as well as you know people that just heard about us and were amazing to support us that early on. And, and that, that really got us going, yeah. Yeah. So, and tell me now about some of the other uh, brand partnerships you guys are working with and the, the new products being made out of this plastic. Yeah, so, I mean, the the journey went through from the skateboard was really that, um, you know, we, we did a small line of sunglasses, we did a, a Frisbee, and we were doing, like, just kind of making this or that kind of stuff. Then we made the second skateboard model. And what we started to run into was, our whole business was based on not how much of an impact we were making and how many communities we were working with and nets were collected. It was actually about how many skateboards we could sell, which we weren't so excited about. We were more mm-hmm. excited about the, the impact side of things and how, how, how much we could, how much net we could really collect and recycle. Right. And so at the same time, we're kind of having this realization um, we were getting approached by companies that were kind of just saying, Hey, we heard what you're doing could we use your plastic in our products? And so it just kind of organically happened that uh, we started to open up to more companies that could could use our materials. So um, that led to us making Jenga Ocean, which is the Jenga game set where we made it from 100% uh, recycled fishing net sourced through a program. Uh, we did a office chair uh, with the company Human Scale. So all the, the solid frame components are from our, our plastic. Nice. Um, and then the bigger opportunity started coming along with um, companies like uh, Costa Sunglasses that that were committed to making an entire line of sunglasses and getting us into an opportunity where they were really committed to backing us to not only support buying our material but supporting the expansion of our program. So that was really huge. And then the big one was um, who's now our investor and partner is Patagonia. So about yeah. um, three years ago, we worked, uh, we've been working now with um, Patagonia's materials team on how we can really open this up much more than just, you know, a few lines of small products and getting the tens of uh, thousands of kilos a year to the hundreds and if not thousands. And that's, awesome. and that's really what uh, is coming to fruition now is that through Patagonia, um, we are now finding the opportunities to get the applications to go to many, many more products where Patagonia is going to launch their, our material in their product lines and, and allow us to, to scale dramatically. And that's what's that's really huge. resulting in, in what we're doing now is, is just getting the opportunity to work with far, far, far 
more uh, fishing communities um, throughout South America, and then eventually our hope is to bring it to to the world. That's awesome. Yeah, you're. It's like I would have thought you're looking at my outline in front of you because that was the next thing I had there was the Tin Shed Adventures or the Tin Shed not tin shed adventures, adventures Ventures yeah. Adventure, yeah Venture Capital <laughs> Fund right so yeah. Uh, they, I, I noticed I went and watched their ad and stuff, and they, they featured those boards quite a bit. Um, yeah. Were you one of their like first uh, investments, or how has that you know partnership developed? We were. I think we were, we were in like like one of the first five investments. I think they made. Um, it, it was not actually far after we launched that first Kickstarter for the first skateboard, and we were at a point where. We always looked up to Patagonia, and yeah. we were aware of their their venture fund. But we were like, we're way too small um, for the, for us to be on our radar. And lo and behold, we got reached out to them, and we were you know just really um, humbled and and honest, and just said like, look, this is. We were still trying to just be a little cruiser skateboard company, and um, and they really believed in us, and we definitely could have never made it this far without them and and uh it's it's all thanks to them really in so many ways that that we've gotten we've made this pivot and and see so much bigger opportunity on the horizon yeah i I think that's a huge thing of like the big guys the companies that have made it giving back to to help give opportunity to to those that have a great idea and a great model working and allow them to flourish you know exactly yeah no it's it's been unreal and so, yeah, we're really excited um, to, to, to get that partnership. I mean, it, it has not been easy. It's not a simple, it's not a, a plug-and-play situation working for Patagonia. There's, there's very rigorous stuff. You know, we had to be third-party audited on, uh, on, on our entire, the entire traceability of our materials. So we have every record of every fishing net, where we're getting it from, and, and which is going to ultimately fed into the product. <clears throat> we also have all the rigorous testing to ensure that we're doing it in the, the most safe possible manner. And, and, uh, and we're also finalizing the, the life cycle assessment so we can truly understand the carbon footprint of our operation and, and what we can do to reduce it as much as possible. That's yeah, that's, that's awesome. I, I love Patagonia has always been like the gold standard and I think a lot of people didn't even know that this is happening within their company too like that they're they're supporting you know not just you guys multiple other uh, companies as well that are are uh, you know coming up and and gonna make a huge difference I think down the line Um, yeah it's it's been I mean I I don't think we could have had a better partner than them absolutely um so to to close it out I got just a couple last questions that I I like to run by everyone that I talk to um so the first one I got here is how would you and you have a a kid on the way so it's perfect so how will you go about explaining or or instilling the ideas of sustainability into like a toddler or a young kid I mean, I think it, it's, it's, it's a bit of a contrast for the way our conversation's been going, but um, I really... You're talking about the darkness and, of it? <laughs> yeah. 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 <laughs> I mean, yeah. the second half has been great, but, um, <laughs> but I, I really like to show the... I, I really hope that we can, and, and that's really what we wanted with Boreo as well, the idea of a kid having their first skateboard be something made from... What, from fishing nets, you know, imagine that seed in their mind at such an early age is to, to not 
show the negativity, but the positive, how empower them to see like how much of an opportunity and in so many ways, you know, we are living in in the most exciting time in, in the history of the world because we have an opportunity to save it and, and to create a really beautiful future. And those are the kind of things I want to instill in my child and, and, and show. And, and that's why if you maybe look at our, uh, our marketing and messaging, we really try not to, to harp too much on the, the negatives. And, you know, if you don't buy this skateboard, you're going to kill a dolphin. Right, and right. Or put stuff. a plastic bag over your kid's yeah, head and, hey, and make hey. them suffocate. And then be like, <laughs> this is how the animals feel. Yeah, don't do that one. Don't recommend that. No, so, so <laughs> people are like, hey, look at all the possible opportunities. Like, here's yeah. a fun example of, of what can be done. There's so much we can do. And and that's really what I what I want to instill. Yeah, that's that's my favorite perspective on this is that we're we're lucky to be in a time that that we have the chance to be the heroes essentially, right? That's, yeah, that's that's the coolest point of view. Um, so next one I got is uh, what do you think in your own lifestyle is is your biggest weakness? You know, we're all human, obviously, and uh, nobody's perfect in this this kind of attempt to to live the most you know, sustainable and impact free lifestyles we can, but, um, you know, what's something that you're kind of working on? I have to travel a lot. I have to travel a lot and, Mm -hmm. and being someone that, uh, from a background life cycle assessment that did, um, you know, calculations of carbon footprints and so forth. I am well aware of the footprint it is of, uh, of, of an airplane ride. And so I, I, (laughs) I think I touched on it already. You know, I work as remotely as po- as much as possible remotely. I mean, I'll have my guys on the ground literally just video call me and walk me through whatever's going on, and I'll just it's like it's um it's it's what's the words like surrogate or someone that's like literally like in my With place and be like ask that person that for ask this person that and yeah. what's that over there and. You know, it, but there is so much that you, there's only so much you can get accomplished, um, being remote. And so I do get haunted by, it's absurd how much I have to fly, but it is what I'm hoping only a temporary thing. And, and, uh, and, and that the whole idea is giving this as a business opportunity for those local community workers. And, and, and then with that, it's something that they know how to run and, and it's set up for, for indefinitely. And, and, and that's something we can hopefully certainly, um, oh, that overtakes the, the, the unfortunate high footprint I have at the moment for the amount of travel yeah. in the time being. Yeah. Have you heard about, um, the, that nonprofit, I guess, that just launched climate neutral that they did a, a panel at the outdoor retailer. I wonder if your, your no, like, no. co-founders mentioned anything. I mean, I, I've certainly like, yeah, I've certainly, um, you know, got uh, is it about like carbon credits in that kind of space yeah yeah it's it's yeah you know specifically to you know give people another basically another badge to go along with b corp one percent for the planet that a lot of these okay. you know, good companies are a part of but it you know is supposed to make a, a standardized unit of measurement around the the carbon calculation essentially and then make it easy to match you up with different offset programs so might be something you'd be interested in just thought i'd mention it yeah, we've gone through the the Living Product Challenge certification, which is um, really comprehensive. It, it's the only one that actually certifies a product or service or building um, that creates a net positive outcome. 
Nice. Um, so you get audited on every critical aspect, socially, environmentally, including carbon, water, energy, waste. Um, and you have to prove that you're not only uh, neutral, but you're actually regenerating those areas. Yeah. And that's so awesome. we were able to justify it. Uh, uh, we're actually going through renewing it, but for the first three years of operation, we're able to justify it because the money we, rein we reinvest into the communities offsets the unavoidable non-renewable energy consumption, water consumption, so forth, through those projects we create. Mm -hmm. And, and um, it's, it's something that is, I think, probably the most impressive uh, label you could achieve because it's saying, like, this product is not only neutral, it's not less bad, right. it's actually but It's making a positive impact on everything. Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. Um, and, and the, the last thing I got here is, is what's a, a life tip that you'd give to, you know, young adults out there knowing that kind of this stuff is happening and understanding this, this idea that you have the opportunity to be a, like a hero, so to speak, to, to make the world a better place right now. What's some advice that you'd give them? Um, there's a quote that, that I always think of that I love. I think it's Howard Thurman his name, uh, it, it's don't ask what the world needs, ask what makes you come alive and go and do that because what the world needs is for people to come alive. Nice. And so it's really, again, about like certainly respecting the value of a good education, having the core fundamentals to, to know, uh, how to make an educated decision, be capable of, of doing whatever work that you're, you're, you're getting into a skill set. Uh, in whatever field, but then harnessing, uh, connecting it with your passion. And if we, if you can do that, and I think there's, there's plenty of young people out there that certainly have a passion for, for the environment and, and the situation and social injustice and so many things that need to be dealt with right now. And so get the skill set and combine it with that passion and don't look back because we desperately, the world needs that more than anything right now. And so if you can combine those, uh, it's something where you don't feel like you're working anymore. It doesn't feel like a job. It's just something that you would, it's like the guy that loves working on his car and over right. the weekend. Yeah, it's you're not clocking your hours. You just have a job yeah. you want to get done. You're like, oh, yeah. I got this goal in mind and it's, it excites me to the point that I, I know what I got to do to get there. Right. And so, so yeah, truly, I, I wish that on, on everyone. And, and I think that's really where we can dig in and, and solve a lot of these issues. Absolutely. And that's, a, I think, a perfect note to end on. So, Ben, thank you for, for the work that you and your co-founders and your whole team is doing over there. Um, and, and for everybody, please go check out Bureo, B-U-R-E-O dot C-O is their website. Um, or, of course, you know, check them out on Instagram and all that stuff. But, uh, yeah, thanks again, Ben. Absolutely, my pleasure. And uh, yeah, keep keep following us. We got a lot of announcements on the way with with the new product launches and so forth. So awesome. should be it's an exciting time for us. Absolutely, I'm excited to see that. And remember, everybody, protect your wild. Man, what a great episode, huh, guys? Not to uh, to my own horn here, but uh, I think that was one of our best. And if you like what you're hearing, remember, please subscribe. Leave us a review. Uh, it's the best way to help other people find our podcast. Help us grow. Help us bring on bigger, better, brighter guests. And yeah, otherwise, check out our website, outthelifestyle.com. And we'll catch you guys next week.